Hey, hey, welcome back. Thank you so much for coming this far, and if you're new here, welcome. I hope you've listened to part one of Jen Kiaba's interview, and we're going to get to part two very shortly. But before that, I just want to reiterate what I said at the beginning of the last episode, which is that the next part of this interview, part three, which will be published on the 20th of April, is, I think, probably one of the most important episodes that I've done. So if you got to skip anything, skip ahead to that one. If you're listening to this before the 20th of April, then maybe listen to this and wait until that date and listen to that one. And honestly, I hope everyone listens to all three parts of this interview because they're all great. And she talks about new and interesting experiences that haven't been talked about on this show. So you should listen to all of them. But if you can't, make sure to listen to part three. That episode, part three with Jen Kiaba, is also going to be the final episode of season one of Falling Out. But have no fear, season two is coming. It's already in the works, and it won't be long. And when I come back, I'm going to have a bit of assistance. Stay tuned to hear more about that. And also, when I say gone, we're talking like weeks, maybe a month or two max, and then coming back full throttle. And now with that in mind, I want to say something to anyone who's interested in speaking out. Number one, I've mentioned this before, but as as a result of of doing this podcast, people have come to me and told me that they know of people who have left the church, left the Unification Church as a result of listening, which is obviously incredibly gratifying and humbling to hear. And I want to extend an invite to anyone else who wants to get involved to reach out to me. If you want to be part of Season 2, we're even talking about Season 3 now. Then reach out to me, and this is the promise that I make to you and that I make to every interviewee. You will have complete control over any parts of the interview that you want taken out or redacted. That's part of the process. After each interview, I give every interviewee the transcript and the full audio file, and I give them the option to come to me and say, can you take this out? Can you take that out? No questions asked. It comes out if the interviewee wants it. All of that is to say I want to give anyone who's interested in coming forward the assurances that I will treat everything confidentially, and you have control over what the finished product looks like. Now, having said that, a couple of other developments have occurred that I want to talk about. So, um, very interestingly, I was contacted by the leaders of igotout.org. So this is my first conversation with them, but what they mentioned that I thought was really interesting is that they have a vision for the hashtag igotout which is to make it sort of an equivalent to Me Too or BLM. They want it to get big. They want it to have momentum behind it. And they want to really make it a voice for the conversations that are being had on this show, but the conversations that are also being had in many other forums as well. They want to make it a voice um, for people who have been unfortunate victims of cultic control. And I talked about them about why why now, you know, I'm I'm doing this, but you know, coincidentally it seems like a whole bunch of other people are having all these conversations right now. And um so in speaking with this organizer, we talked about like, you know, what is it? What's happening now that's making this the time period where everyone's coming forward? And we both kind of agreed pretty quickly that it's it's because of QAnon. It's because of the cult like thinking that is gripping the masses and us people who grew up in these circumstances have some very unique perspectives 
that we can offer to, to hopefully get people out of those circumstances. And just circling back to that, the organizer also mentioned that right now there are two groups who are the most vocal online in terms of making noise about their experiences in cultic environments. And those two groups are ex-evangelicals and us, second-generation ex-moonies. Maybe that doesn't describe you, but it certainly describes me and I think a lot of the people that are listening to this. So those two groups are the ones right now that are speaking out the most with the strongest voices about their cultic experiences and what it was like getting out of those coercive environments. And again, I don't think that there's an accident that those are the two groups that are speaking out right now against the backdrop of Q and the cult of Trump. If you think about those two groups, so the ex-evangelicals, they're like the people who've lived in the base of Trump and Q right now in in this moment they come from the groups that form the the foundation of 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 that world right now in in the here and now um but second generation moonies we were the precursor to all of that i've talked about this on this show before but i feel very strongly that we laid the foundation for the birth of QAnon for the birth of Trump, for the birth of the alt-right, we were the unfortunate cannon fodder and the fertilizer for, for that ground as, as kids. And so um, it's no accident that right now when we're looking at the you know horrific state that's being thrust upon the world by the likes of Trump and Q and everything else, we're the ones who are sounding the alarm bells because we grew up in it. And actually just kind of circling that back, this idea of Moon birthing Trump and Q, um, we could honestly do an entire podcast just on that. And actually in season two, we're going to talk more about that in detail. Um, but I have this idea in my head of if you think of all these Q people who are obsessed with the sex traffickers under Central Park and the adrenochrome and uh, you know all, all this stuff, right? Like – they have all this energy to go out and like, you know, expose these sex traffickers. Well, listen up, motherfuckers. The Moonies have been more or less sex trafficking their kids for decades. They're definitely labor trafficking them right now. So why don't we figure out a way to make the the, the Q head of the snake eat its own tail in the UC and just, you know, sick some of that Q energy right onto the UC. See if they can, like, self-consume themselves. I don't know how to make that happen, but if anyone has any suggestions, hit me up. I would love to be a part of that. Um... Okay, so if we go back to this episode with Jen Kiaba, um, number one, in, in part one, did, did anyone keep track of how many times she moved and how many houses she had? Because um, that trend continues in this, in, this, in this episode. I've completely lost count. If anyone can, can keep track, then you, know, you win a gold star. Uh, please, please let me know. Um, like, I don't want to give anything away here, but one thing that really stands out to me is just the, the epic cruelty of the organization. And as you will hear, um, damning someone to hell for all eternity for something that they had zero agency in. 
I want to say one more thing on that. If that sickens you, well, number one, I hope it does sicken you. Number two, if it sickens you to the point that maybe you want to leave a cult, maybe maybe you're thinking, okay, this is the final straw, but, you know, how do I do it? How do I, how do I leave this thing that has been, you know, part of my life for X number of years? I can imagine that's a very daunting thing to do. If everyone needs a suggestion on how to start, here's mine. It's very simple. Say, I'm sorry. Say, I was wrong. Just start with those two sentences to all the people that you love that might have been hurt by this group, and the rest will follow from there. And if you're thinking beyond that, what about, you know, the ties I have with the group? You know, maybe that'll that'll help with my family, but how do I, what about the group? You know, it's really easy. Just stop going. Just stop going to the meetings. Stop taking the calls. Stop giving them your money. You don't have to leave in a declaration of uh, independence. You can just stop. You can just fade out and then fade into the lives of your families and just leave it at that. So anyway, I'm hoping that with all of this said, um, I'm hoping you enjoy part two with Jen Kiaba. Here it is. Shocker. Right, I know. I know. Um, and it was, it was interesting because it, my mother always used to tell me not to live a double life. She would always Mm. caution me of that. And looking back, I question how does one not live a double life when you're told to have a secret identity? Because again, that's the whole whole premise of your existence. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So I had no problem compartmentalizing the fact that I had this great social life in high school, a really cute upperclassman boyfriend, which made me popular. Mm. And then I could be, a, you know, a BC during the, the Sunday services or whatever. Um, but it got to a point towards, I would say, like the end of the first semester or second semester where I was like, what's going to happen to me? I think I'm going to have to leave the church and marry this guy mm. because uh. I've I, I don't even think I'd kissed him at this point. We were like holding yeah. hands in the hallways kind of thing and like chatting secretly on AIM. Yeah. Because I had told him I'm not allowed to have a boyfriend. My parents won't let me date. So he kind of knew that I was doing this in secret and didn't yeah. pressure for it to be like a full on high school relationship. But that was the first time that I really contemplated leaving the church. Mm. I didn't know what that meant, but it really scared me that I had I had done things that I wasn't even upset about Mm. that made me other in the church. And again, I didn't have language for that, but that was this feeling that would keep me up at night. And there was this girl uh, in the Arizona community who had fallen and that, yeah, that means she had sex. Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know if she'd had sex. Okay. Like, okay. Maybe she was 14 and she'd had sex. I remember her being referred to as fallen, but she couldn't have been more than like 14, 15, which is on the younger side for sexual activity. It happens. Um, 
Yeah, but the but way I, that she was referred to was, you know, she's this fallen BC. Yeah. And uh, she was, her name was this byword in the community for like what you don't want to have happen. You don't want to become like so-and-so, right? Yeah. Um, she came to church one time. Nobody would talk to her. People wouldn't look at her. It yeah. was this cautionary tale that my mom would use to kind of keep me in line. And so wow. there's that fear God. on the other side of this, that like, if anybody finds out about this, I'm going to become like this girl. I'm going to be shunned, essentially. We didn't have a word for it. We didn't have that language for it then. Um, and it's not like in Jehovah's Witnesses where there's like a formal disfellowship process. Yeah. It was just, you're excluded. Yeah. Um, and so we we went to a dance, my boyfriend and I. Uh, I snuck to this dance. I didn't tell my parents. And the next day I, I was up all night nauseous with guilt. I felt mm. so horrible for having touched this guy, for having lied to my parents that yeah. the next morning I confessed to my mother, not that I had a boyfriend, but that I had lied to her and that I'd gone to this dance. So okay. towards the end of the year, he asked me to prom and I, I knew that I couldn't do it because mm. it, it would have just been too much deception. I wouldn't have been able to handle it. But he had asked me out by having friends hand out these roses to me with little notes tied to them throughout the day that spelled out, will you go to prom with me? So I came home with this bouquet um, and my mom. I gave this guy credit, home. man. Like, he had game, yeah, well, right? Yeah, right. well done, man. <laughs> yeah, the way that he had asked uh. me out was taking those candy hearts and scratching the messages off of them and writing, will you go out with me in a bunch yeah. of them and like dropping them into right. my hand secretly. It was cute. All right, that's really, it was yeah, such right. a cute, innocent relationship um so anyway he had asked me to prom and i came home not realizing my mom was going to be home early and she hmm. saw me with the bouquet <laughs> and she flipped her shit so uh obviously i did not end up going to prom and she at the end of the year i think it was like a month later or less she sent me to california for one heart camp leadership training which was well, well, yeah what is that I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. Tell me. What okay. So one heart camp was, uh, you know, a workshop on the West coast, similar to how camp sunrise was on the East coast. Okay. I think again, it might've been less hardcore than camp sunrise, but okay. leadership training was, I think like a four day training in, I want to say the Oakland center. So again, I'm 14 years old. She puts me on a plane by myself, sends me to another state and has total strangers pick me up at the mm -hmm. airport and drive me to the center. And the, the older sister who was running this workshop dressed completely in scrubs every single day because she said it was the most modest clothing that she could find. Wait, like doctor and, scrubs, like, like doctor scrubs. scrubs, like, yeah. Yeah, every day, like light blue one day, green another day. And I thought it was oh. weird because she was blessed. And so for anybody who is, is not an ex-church member, my perception growing up again was that, you know, beauty in women is dangerous until yeah. you're blessed. Yeah. And then you're sort of under the protection of your husband. And so yeah. you are allowed to wear makeup. You're allowed to wear jewelry. You're allowed to dress nicely. Yeah. Um, you can be beautiful without danger. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that she was dressing like this and she was blessed was very confusing to me, oh. but that's almost like a, a side note. She communicated to us via a whistle. And I think they did this at Camp Sunrise too, but she used like a lifeguard's whistle. And um, 
the it was called absolute love absolute faith absolute obedience training it might have even been called hell training because hell training was like mm. this thing that um it- i think it was had started in the 90s yeah i remember there was a work there's a workshop at camp sunrise set with yeah. a 70 day hell training workshop well uh, i did not go to a 70 day hell training but i yeah. think this was supposed to be like a four day hell training yeah um and again i was 14 i wasn't you're a little bit older than me yeah. so maybe the older brothers and sisters got subjected to yeah i actually I, I didn't go to that but my older sister did uh it's basically okay. like her entire summer Jeez. was was spent at that thing yeah uh, I, I don't know how exactly how old she was but yeah that was the thing i think that some of the activities were taken from that training and transposed into this one um because you know we were woken up in the morning to do exercises we had to run and things um we had to do something called father's course which was kind of like a scavenger hunt but like instead of finding things you'd have to like carry somebody on your back and be barefoot and walk across the asphalt uh, because moon supposedly, and I think this has been debunked, but had supposedly carried a man uh, from New York, uh, New York, from Northern Korea to Southern Korea after the the bombing of the Pyongyang. Yeah. I've heard that's been debunked. I spoke to someone recently who told me like, there's this famous photo. I remember we have like giant versions of it in the church Yep, uh, and it's meant to be moon and this guy that he carried apparently it's not them at all it's like all the people it's just mythology Uh, in the church at this point but we had to do that we had to carry somebody on our back barefoot so that we could understand father's heart better and we had to like build approximations of his first cardboard hut in in korea so we would build we built these little like buildings out of cardboard and like all of that's fine but i remember sort of the culmination of the training was that it was like three in the morning and this older sister woke us up with the whistle marched us outside and made us do unison jumping jacks in the middle of the night and it, it took like over an hour wow. for us to get to the number that was specified yeah. um and you know we're chanting absolute love absolute faith absolute obedience and can you imagine oh. being a neighbor waking up to see like 20 teenagers in their pajamas barefoot on the concrete doing these jumping jacks what? chanting wait you were close enough to neighbors at this place it the, wasn't we were like in a, a neighborhood we weren't in like a oh you know, like yeah a okay it wasn't like for the camp, training camp yeah center. yeah okay but oh. once yeah so that was our training to prepare us to be assistant counselors and then once we got to one heart camp um this older sister continued to use the whistle and yeah. when we were when we heard a specific whistle pattern, we had to stop everything that we were doing and do push-ups to demonstrate oh to the campers the beauty of absolute obedience. So it could be in the middle of lunch and we would have to drop, like, drop our food and get to the floor and do our push-ups. I even sprained my ankle midway through camp and was not given permission to sit out of, of push-ups. I had to do them with one foot. Oh, and I used to be strong enough God. to be able to do that. <laughs> oh, man, that's horrible. Right. And so um, immediately after that, my mom sent me to PLA. So I was on PLA 99. Yeah. Yeah. Can and you explain what PLA is? I think we've, we've explained it before. Yeah. So Pure Love Alliance is a uh, nonprofit, non-sectarian front group of the Unification Church that promotes uh, abstinence before marriage and fidelity within marriage. And it it consisted of in the summertime, us doing tours and rallies for abstinence. Um, and, you know, making all these speeches and singing songs about STDs and whatnot. 
Um, and oh, again, yeah, I remember like, those songs. Those were yes, oh, they were man. terrible. Oh, they were man. so terrible. And do you remember the uh, the the um, the costumes? The, the costumes, were, costumes. I have photographs of those that, costumes. They, like, they had like a gonorrhea. Yeah, a guy <laughs> in a gonorrhea costume. If you can imagine, uh, like a really fucked up grimace as gonorrhea. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there were a couple other ones as well. Yeah. Right. Um, but the the core of PLA was really the core curriculum, and what that was was an abstinence-only sex education curriculum that the Pure Love Alliance was trying to get into the yeah. school systems. So they actually got federal funding to teach their the Unification Church's abstinence only education in like 60 schools in Chicago's uh, Chicago and, and other states yeah. until people found out about the connection to the unification yeah. church. However, leaders did maintain there was no connection, despite the fact that most of the board members of PLA were leaders in the unification church. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I remember just for some additional context there, I remember I was on one of those PLA tours. Apologies if I've spoken about this to other people who are listening, but um yeah, we were specifically told like everyone on the tour was it was it was a unification church member, with the exception mm-hmm. of like maybe one person out of a few hundred. Yep. Uh, and we were specifically told if anyone ever asks, say that this is this is non-denominational. There's no mm-hmm. there's no re- religious affiliation, mm-hmm. uh, and that's just what we were meant to say. Like that, so right. that, that that like bald faced lie was just part of the part of the program. The program. And I want to circle back to that. Um a little further down the timeline because it is relevant. Um, But just to underscore what you're saying, like we did have a few kids who were not church members, uh, I think both years that I went, but we still had to do our morning services our our Hundakes, you know, moon changed the name of everything over the years. So morning service became Hundake. We still had to do pledge. There were still prayers. So it was very much a unification church culture within the Alliance tour. It was a bubble. Um, And so uh, for me, this is where my compartmentalization starts to crack a little bit because I am for every day, again, these are really intense schedules. We were waking up early, going to bed late, sleeping on gym floors, sometimes on church pews, um, sometimes on the bus. So we're sleep deprived. I I just want to say something else that I remember when I was on one of these PLA tours, they they would be like they wouldn't know where where you know three or four hundred kids are going to spend the night yeah. like yeah. in the morning they'd be like we're just going to arrive in the city and like hopefully mm-hmm. hopefully find I remember we I think we we're in Chicago and they they like they they called some 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 YMCA's and and yeah. they're like we got these kids can you help us out yeah and like the Y was like all right I guess they could sleep on the sleep on the gym floor or something like that like yeah. that happened all the time for and it's, it's complete chaos uh you may want to bleep this name out yeah but who was the tour leader. I fucking lead. hate that guy so much. I do too. We will bleep his name out, but I'm telling you, he's a goddamn <laughs> fucking asshole and I'm keeping this shit in. Okay. Never a fucking expletive about that, that guy. He's fucking staying in. Yeah. Continue, so please. he, he had said to these, these kids, you know, that you have to be prepared to only eat an apple for lunch and sleep on a parking lot, you know, in a parking lot, because again, you know, this is this God's mission kind of a thing. Um, and so this was really a way to shame these kids who are being put yeah. into these really difficult circumstances. Um, and again, you could probably argue that some of the service projects that we were doing could constitute labor trafficking as well. Mm-hmm. We, we fundraised while we were on PLA. Yeah. Um, we did do these service projects and we had to pay to be there. 
I, I don't know where the ethical line is between, because most of us came in not really knowing what we were doing. I had no idea what PLA was. Yeah, no one knew. Yeah. No one knew. And so, you know, we were just being forced to do what people told us. But I think the, the thing that um, is most upsetting to, about me to PLA is, again, how the, the church used it as an opportunity to get federal funding to push their agenda mm-hmm. in public schools. Yeah. And so this core curriculum, we were all given a handbook that we had to create three minute speeches from. And some of the juicy tidbits from this was like oh, uh, one in one in every 10 condoms fails. If you knew that one in every 10 planes crashed, would you ever board a plane? And so it was really this fear-based yeah. uh, kind of curriculum. And I believe that the ACLU also has talked about how the this specific curriculum and others like it were horrible in that they used shame and that they were non-LGBT inclusive. So they shamed those those mm-hmm. young people even more and they were highly problematic. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah, why yeah. they shouldn't get federal funding. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, but, I remember that. They was like, the whole thing was like, was like one man, one wife. Like, yes, exactly. Like was, it was very, it was very heteronormative. Like, hetero. If, if that wasn't, if that wasn't you, then you didn't yeah. get that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was this fear-based, shame-based training for these young people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm now at like towards the end, probably about a month in of back-to-back indoctrination activities. And mm-hmm. so my my compartmentalization starts cracking and I met a really cute boy. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, the worst time to meet a cute boy. The worst time. Um and, and it really started making me think about like leaving the church. What if God had prepared somebody like this really cute boy for me, right? It brought me back to that lesson that my mom had been indoctrinating me with from a young age of, oh, if, you know, if Aurora had just waited, she would have gotten everything that she wanted. Yeah. And so I went home with this shame Um, and I, like, I met up with my boyfriend a few days later, Uh, a couple of my friends showed up at my house, knocked on the door. This is the boyfriend in Arizona, not the guy. I go home to, yeah. Yeah. So cute boy on PLA. We're going to set him aside for a little while, but he's like throbbing in my mind, you know? (laughs) Um, I showed up back home and a couple of my friends knocked on my door and they're like, dude, you're alive. Like, we didn't know where you went because I had no way of contacting anybody. Mm. Um, I didn't even know I was going and they had like staged this intervention. They bring me to my friend's house. They bring my boyfriend over like at the pool. And then they're like, we're going to leave you two alone. Cause you guys have to talk because you've been gone for a month and you haven't talked to anybody. There was oh. no way to like call anybody. Yeah. This and is pre cell phones. Time- yeah. Well, pre cell phones. And also like were you ever given an opportunity to call home? No, I don't think so. Yeah. yeah. I, just, I, I think, I think that whole time when I was on PLA, which is like two months throughout the summer, mm-hmm. I don't think I talked to my parents once. I don't right. think I ever called home. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it, I've, I've really reflected on this since then, because again, at that time, I, I didn't have the capacity to think about it, but I look back and I'm like, wow, nobody ever, like when I was homesick, nobody ever offered me yeah. a call home. Phones yeah. were always in off-limit VIP kind yeah, of Yeah, they were like in the leaders. Yeah, in the cabins or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, like, where were you going to get a phone on PLA when you're like yeah. traveling around like that? Yeah. Um, and so I think my boyfriend was like really freaked out. And I was weirded out that he had like expected a call because my family never expected it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, my yeah. family wasn't weirded out that I didn't that contact tells them. you everything, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. There was this big culture clash. Um, and so I like, I couldn't be physically affectionate with him. I couldn't like hold his hand or anything. I was so freaked out. And I think he was weirded out by that. But shortly thereafter, I said to my mom, mom, if, if I go back to that high school, I'm afraid I'm going to fall. So I, <laughs> again, like the most that we That's have done it. is like pecked on the lips. Right. Okay. But I was so brainwashed by that point yeah. that that was where I was at. And so she freaks out. She unenrolls all of us from school and she moves us across the city. Whoa. Mm-hmm. God, that's a very severe reaction. It was a very severe reaction. And and the worst part is she moved us into a Mormon community. So Mesa has, I think, the second highest population density of Mormons in the entire United States after uh, Salt Lake City. Mm -hmm. And um, so when our neighbors came to greet us, the first thing that they asked us is, are you LDS? And we're like, what? No, and we're the like, other weird ones. <laughs> my mom's like, no, we're unificationists. We're we also minis. start with MO. It's pretty close. Right, right. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh-huh. and even at school, it was the same thing. Um, but because there was, it was practically, I was practically going to a Mormon school. Yeah. But um, to rewind a little bit, I remember the first time we went into our new house, I was like, what is that smell? It stunk. It was like the sickly, sweet, rotten smell. Um, and it was this big gloomy house with these beige carpets. Right. So our neighbors come over with like the casseroles and the cookies and whatever, and are having like the get to know you, are you LDS conversation? Yeah. And, uh, <sighs> and my mom is talking to this woman who's the neighbor and the neighbor is like, so how are you liking the new house? And my mom's like, Oh, it's great. You know, and she starts talking about the search for houses and whatever. And the woman's like, so the realtor didn't tell you what happened. And my mom's like, what happened? She's like, the realtor didn't tell you that the last tenant shot himself and that they didn't find his body for three weeks until his ex-girlfriend came looking for him. And my mom is like, uh, what? She's like, yeah, that's the smell. Oh my God. What the fuck? Yeah. And then she goes, and it's too bad about these carpets. And my mom is so like, what the fucking over the dead body thing that she's like, what? carpets yeah they're they're beige i have kids they're gonna stain whatever and the woman's like no they're the same color as the scorpions this entire neighborhood is built (laughs) on on top of a scorpion colony (laughs) and the way that we deal with them here is we fumigate here is the card for my exterminator it's very expensive (laughs) and so whoa the next day I found the blood stains in the wallpaper behind oh like the fridge and in the, the laundry room. What and the f- this sort Jesus. of sets the stage for just like the, my family starting to fall apart. Um, okay. Wow. If you can imagine, like there's, there's no, no better setting for, for mental illness to just start coming out. Right. Um, I made it about one semester in before I was falling apart because I couldn't sleep. My father got stung on the face in bed. My sister got stung in bed. My sister got stung um, trying to kill a scorpion that was like coming towards my little brother. If you left damp towels on the bathroom floor, you'd find them under there because they like dark, wet, warm places. Um, (laughs) And uh, my family couldn't afford to fumigate. 
So we were always finding scorpions. So I was having nightmares about like dead men watching me while I slept and also like scorpions crawling up the wall or Jeez, whatever. Yeah, that's like, like, we that's had like to... two horror films at once. Yeah, it was definitely like a horror film. And so everybody's mental health started to degrade in this house. Um, my father became much more violent. My mother became much more emotionally and mentally frayed. And I couldn't handle being at a school where kids wouldn't talk to me because I wasn't Mormon, mm. uh, especially going from a situation where I had a solid group of friends and I'd had a boyfriend. My boyfriend broke up with me when I moved because he's like, dude, I just want to have fun my senior year, you know? Yeah. And I was like, yeah. Can't, you I can't know. fault the logic there. <laughs> no, I know. I know. Um, <laughs> and plus I'd abandoned him for like, you know, a good part of the summer, yeah. you know? So he was probably like, what the hell is going on? Yeah. And so during that time, I, I dropped out of school again because I couldn't handle it. Um, I had enrolled in the school a month late because it took my family that much time to move across oh, the yeah. city. Okay. And so I was so behind, I was barely passing as it was i think i managed c's my first semester okay. and i was a straight a student yeah um, but i was so behind and all of the, the teachers wanted me to catch up on this work so i was like literally working through my lunch break uh in you know teachers offices and things like that sometimes i would eat lunch in the bathroom because i had no friends and then oh. i would like be working on homework all night and i just couldn't handle it so i pretty much broke down and dropped out of school again sophomore year midway um and around that time the cute boy on pla and i had started <laughs> talking on aim okay and so can you, we're, can you explain what aim is just, aol instant people, messenger some people yeah. might not know some people might not know yeah, so pre-text uh, messaging you know pre-facebook messenger pre-snapchat yeah. pre like that's uh, what it was for us yeah. and that's how we stayed in contact yeah he had like secretly written his aim handle in my pla notebook where we'd all like signed each other's notebooks yeah. at the end of pla and stuff so he'd like written it into a corner i want um, to see that do you still have that i don't i would love to see the messages that were written, written oh there. i have some of those messages of like <laughs> you're such a artistic sister i'll never be as perfect as you kind of a thing i yeah. do have those Be-lars. yeah I, I have them in my scrapbook i even have my my pla speech from 99 Ooh. it is so embarrassing it's, oh yeah, yeah oh and a lot of it I, again is extracts from the core curriculum it yeah. was core curriculum mad libs um I, ha- I have one of those embarrassing ones too uh, I'm, yeah. just gonna, I'm just gonna leave it there and we can <laughs> continue this conversation okay i don't want to talk about it anymore right so um on the side i'm developing this emotional relationship with uh, another second generation of the opposite sex so this is a huge problem yeah. And my family's mental health is fraying and we're becoming a much more violent home. Shit. And around this time, my father loses his job again. And okay. my mother's... And wait, was all, that a church job as well? Was it was he- not a church job. It was a job at the state government, which the former state leader had helped my, my dad get. Okay. Um, so he lost this job. And he started looking for jobs like in Hawaii and stuff. And he just could not find a job because again, his entire, with the exception of the Arizona state government, his entire resume was pretty much church jobs. But now here he's this PhD with this incredibly difficult track record. What kind of like think tanks were going to take him, right? What universities would take him? So he really struggled to find a job. Yeah. Um, And my mother started to use this 
as proof of my father being quote off center. And so that was this term that we used in the church to describe somebody like being spiritually out of alignment. But what it really meant is like, they must be doing something bad Mm. because in church theology, you have the four position foundation, which is like, it shows it's this, you know, pseudoscientific graph, right. With God at the top and either mind body, and then, you know, human to show like mind body unity centered on God. And and if you, it's, it's hilarious. If you, I've I've looked at like other cult leaders they basically they do the same shit they 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 create this like word salad and these diagrams that look like complex and like theoretically like impressive but it's just meaningless drivel basically but they 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 kind of they 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 claim they've they've created some like grand unifying theory of the world by you know drawing some circles and some arrows right it's very very common for cult leaders to do this and the, the way that they show family love is God uh, at the top and then man and woman, and they're both having their love relationships with God and their love relationships with each other and yeah. then the love relationships with the baby. And then that child is supposed to learn about God's love via this four position foundation. But so on one hand, church members might say, see, this shows that there's equality between the sexes, right? Mm. But also in church theology, man is subject and woman is object. Yes, I, you know, absolutely. Man is the initiator of love and woman returns beauty. So the man is essentially the head of the family. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, my mom is looking at my dad struggling to find these jobs um, and, and this history of him losing these jobs, right? Because he lost his job in Virginia. Now he's lost this job here as proof that somehow he must have been doing something wrong. Now, when we moved from Virginia to Arizona, she had intimated to me that she thought that he might have been having like a homosexual affair with somebody at Summit Council. She's like, what is he doing in D.C. all week? She's saying these things to a 12 year old. And additionally, from the time that I was very young, maybe eight, she was planting these seeds in my mind of uh, somebody has sexually abused you children. The first time she said it to me again, I must've been eight years old. And she said something to me along the lines of Jenny, have you ever touched your brothers inappropriately? And I was like, what? And I said, I change their diapers all the time. I, you know, I might've accidentally (laughs) touched them, like cleaning them up, you know? And, and she's like, okay, well, your brothers have been showing some very uh, worrisome signs and I'm worrying that, you know, somebody's touched them inappropriately. And there were even- what signs? What did, what was she talking about? At that point, I didn't know. Okay. Um, and it also there was also this point where my mother refused to let my father bathe us, me and my sister anymore. Um, and and it, it had okay. to do with like suspicions, right? So once, if we fast forward now to I'm 15, we're living in what my sister and I refer to as the scorpion house. Um, my mother starts to revisit some of these, these theories that she has in her head, right? Your father must have been having an inappropriate relationship with somebody. Hey. Somebody has been um, touching the boys or you kids inappropriately. And, and then- can, 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 I, can I ask just, I, just on that? Did she start thinking about this as a result of sort of the predicament you were in in the house with the scorpions and the and the the, the guy getting murdered, murdered there? Because I know there is this this concept, and and forgive me if you're you're kind of coming to this. There is this concept of like if things go wrong for or mm-hmm. if 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 negative things happen to you, mm-hmm. it's kind of like because of because of things that have happened in your family or maybe that your right. ancestors right. have done. You've set the foundation. You set for the, Satan to yeah, you've set the foundation. So I'm wondering if maybe the reason she went on she started thinking like this is because you were in this 
this house with all just these crazy bananas. I think the answer is both yes and no. I think that she had been harboring these thoughts for a long time because I think even when I was much younger, she was saying stuff like this, but it could have been the result of struggles in the family and she's trying to figure out what caused it. And so she is projecting mere dad must be doing something wrong, things like that. Yeah. But at the point where I'm 15, she's telling me that like your little brothers are, um, they're, they're like pointing to each other's genitals in the shower and things like that. And they're showing these signs of abuse. Um, so I think there was a, we were a very abusive, toxic household. So of course kids are going to be Mm. showing signs of abuse. Right. Mm. And there's normal sexual development of children. And I think that she was crossing her wires on both of these and pointing to normal sexual development of kids, like noticing their genitalia, noticing each other's genitalia. Mm. Like, I'm pretty sure that kids, when they're like four or five or six, if they're in the shower with each other, they're going to be like, look, look at what you have. Yeah, 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 have. yeah, they do that. My son totally does that. normal. Like, I, I've seen him do that. He'll be like, hey, what's that? Like, what? <laughs> right. Yeah, How does this fun. work? Like, why is that different? Or, or like, yes. Yeah, like, yeah, he, that's completely normal for kids right. to wonder that. Um, and even starting to explore themselves and masturbation to some degree, I think is part of normal development. Yeah. Um, and so she was looking at those things as signs of sexual abuse, which I okay. don't think that they were. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so she decided at some point, your father has sexually abused some or all of you children when you were infants. He is this horrible monster and we have to get away from him. What the fuck? So he was set to uh, present a paper at a church conference in Korea and she snuck a letter into his briefcase detailing all of her accusations and he went off to Korea And while he was gone, she had us go begging for cardboard at the local grocery stores so that we could get boxes because we couldn't afford boxes to pack up the entire house, put everything in storage or we were living, you know, amongst towers of boxes. And then she ran away with us to motels where she was living off of our grandfather's credit card for like two weeks until I think the, the credit card reached its max. And then she brought us home to the house where my dad was. Whoa. And so they have this confrontation. Um, and Jesus. my sister and I, uh, we've had years of stepping in between our father and our younger brothers to protect them. And so we open up the window. I climb out the window. My sister hands my brothers to me and we run across the street, across the highway to this convenience store oh, and fuck. buy our brother's sodas and candy to get them out of the house with whatever pocket change we had how old are your brothers now um if i was 15 the youngest would have been seven so they would have been like seven nine eleven yeah yeah my sister would have been 13 um but the problem was is that my dad had recently started to hit my mother he'd never really done that before he'd always hit us like he was a a belt guy um, sometimes, you know, like we would get the, the metal end of the belt. Um, but he'd never really hit our mom until recently at that point. And so I remember, uh, standing there with my sister and I go, I have to go back. Like, I can't let mom be alone in this. Mm. And my sister is like, no, if you're going, I'm going with you. Like my sister was very much mm. solidarity. You know, I'm going to protect anybody that you're going to protect. 
Mm. And so we go back across the street and we pull our brothers back into the house. And we were basically like huddling in this empty room on these mattresses, listening to our parents scream and waiting for the moment to intervene. Mm. And in the midst of this, I got a call from the PLA offices asking me to be part of the PR team for the wait, 2000 wait, like, tour. Like at the same moment when this Not at happening. the same moment, oh, okay. but like okay. we were home okay. at this time. This is the environment that we were in okay. for a okay. few days. All right. and, I, um, I thought you meant in that huddle. While no, no, not happening. in that huddle. Sure. Um, but maybe like the next day. Yeah. <laughs> um, excuse me. And when I told my mom, she decides like that has to be my mission. I don't know if, if it was like, you're going to help save the family or whatever, but certainly mm. she would have looked at it as me setting like this heavenly foundation for our family to help save our family. Yeah. So she, I think she borrowed the money for the registration fee from like my grandfather or something to send me. Cause it was expensive. We did okay. not have the money to send me and she's driving wow. me to the airport and she goes, Jenny, I, I want you to pull out your notebook and write down your grandparents' uh, office phone number and their home phone number. And I was like, why? Because I wasn't really allowed to talk to my grandparents. Like we okay. would visit them and things like that. Yeah. But one of the things that my parents were very strict about is that anybody who was not in the church was not family. Yeah. So uh, my, all, I think all of That's my surprising. grandparents and my uncle had gone to workshops when my parents had joined, but not, none of them had joined with them. So they were part of the fallen world. So yeah. they were technically not really my family. Yeah. So it was this very weird thing being told, like, write down their numbers. Mm. And, and so when I said, why, she said, because I don't know where you're going to be coming home to. And I was like, what? And, she, and I was like, you mean I'm not coming home to Arizona? And she's like, you can't expect me to know everything right now. She's like, I'm praying for guidance from spirit world. And so I understood that that probably meant she was going to run away from my dad again. Yeah. And so she bought me a one-way ticket to Chicago and uh, I arrived and we were all staying in an outside church. So it was like, a, I think it was one of the black ministers that, you know, the, the church was witnessing to. There was this big push in the 2000s. In yeah, in Chicago. I feel like Chicago was like a hub where the, 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 mm. the UC was really trying to like become friends with black churches. Effectively. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I... <laughs> I remember even being very young, my mother in Virginia was witnessing to black ministers. She, she felt like it was part of like the reparations that we had to do to the black community. Um, especially in Charlottesville, because she said she felt a spiritual connection to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, and she <laughs> knew that, you know, a number of the black residents were descendants of Thomas Jefferson via Sally Hemings, who was an enslaved woman. So for her, you know, even though like to us, we'd be like, that's some whack white savior shit. In her mind, it was her way of serving these communities with the most valuable thing that she had, which was the knowledge of the Messiah. Um, and, and I'm there's, like 10, 12. That's, that's, that's a lot. That's like there's, such there's a, a mindfuck. There's a lot happening there. <laughs> I know. I, don't I know. Even, we could do a whole episode on that. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't uh, think I'm the appropriate no. person to speak yeah. to that. But yeah, I remember no. thinking, why would a Black person want to join the church? They're never given Korean spouses. They're very yeah. rarely given leadership position yeah so yeah. even at a young age i recognized the racism in the church yeah um 
but anyway, so we were, we were all sort of stationed at this black minister's church in Chicago and everyone was going to be sleeping in a sanctuary that night. But I was told, no, you can't go to sleep. Wait out in the lobby. Uh, we're going to take you to the Chicago center. Um, because the PR team, which was mostly first generation, was going to be operating away from the tour group in various centers while the core tour group was going uh, to see. be moving around. Okay, okay. Um, and this for me was kind of alarming because for me, I was like, my family is falling apart right now and I could be fallen and not even know it, right? So the implications of being told that you were potentially sexually abused mm-hmm. without you're remembering it like being an infant and having this happen potentially means that you've fallen right and that your lineage has been destroyed um yeah fuck that's crazy that's like yeah yeah, so just for yeah for people that don't know like falling is i mean so what the 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 church theology is god there's a lot jesus yes that's fucking crazy what you just told me um so, well, and, okay. and to add to it, let me just add to it that my mom had said to me when revealing, you know, the full scope of, of her accusations um, and her beliefs around my father, she said that, you know, God can forgive anything. God can even forgive the fall. This is the one thing that God can't forgive. Now, granted, this is pre-forgiveness ceremonies that were introduced in like 2006, where a fallen second gen could technically regain some sort of status. Yeah. Um, but what she was telling me is basically like, uh, you're you're in hell forever for eternity, no matter what. God can't forgive it. Yeah. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. I feel like I I need to translate here. I understand, <laughs> I understand what you said, and it's like it's really really fucked up. But I feel like I need to translate here. So, uh, okay. So in the UC theology, basically, uh, people who are people whose parents are blessed by Reverend Moon are born without original sin, thus being so-called blessed children. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for them, the worst thing in the world is to fall, so-called to have fall, sex. which is having sex outside of the realms of a marriage right. within, within the church to another right. second generation. So what Jen has just said is that um, her, by her mother, accusing her father of potentially sexually abusing her when she was a kid um jen had committed the greatest crime possible and was doomed to an eternity in hell for something that she never did Uh, or had no agency around no memory of yeah exactly exactly yeah i mean we haven't even gotten into whether or not it actually did happen but and i don't think that it did Uh, again no memory of it um but just as an aside like my sister and i have these memories vaguely of our mother talking about that potentially having happened to her when she was a little girl so it could have been a projection on her part um i've spoken to mental health professionals who think that my mother was um had borderline personality disorder so there's like any number of explanations for the accusation other than my father was a complete monster yeah um which is in, in no way to absolve him of physical and mental and emotional abuse. But yeah. I don't think that that happened. But at that time, I didn't know that. Yeah. I was, I had been primed for so many years to believe this, that when she revealed the full scope of her allegations, I was like, yes, of course. Right. Yeah. Because she had socialized oh, me to believe it for so many years. Jesus. Christ. And so I arrived at the Chicago center um, again, not fully knowing what it meant to be on the PR team, but I thought like, okay, well, I'm, 
I am an untouchable, but maybe I can somehow like absolve myself of these sins. And by being with other blessed children, that's going to be like this balm on my soul. Even though my experiences with some blessed children up until this point haven't been great. Um, yeah, I mean, like lots of us were assholes, you know. Right, like, right. I was probably any, an asshole too. <laughs> in any group of kids, there's always going to be some, you know, percentage of assholes. And right. We were not, we were not immune to that. Um, right. I was looking at it as like my, my nuclear family is broken. And so I need to find relief and solace within my larger church family. Mm. So being brought away from the tour group was like, I couldn't handle it. And so the first day that I was there, I was crying in, in the, so the center in Chicago is this like I don't think the church owns it anymore, but it was like this nine bedroom mansion and the bedrooms were stuffed full of bunk beds because back in the day it had been this busy hub for witnessing Uh, and whatnot. I was alone in this room that could have slept 20 to 40 people Mm. uh, with nobody really communicating with me. And so I felt completely isolated and I woke up just absolutely in tears like had me do hundake with him and it was super awkward and you can bleep that whole part out um but i was crying. wait it was just you and him it was just me and him oh, and uh he had creep. me read this oh. he had me read this speech and this speech was like again talking about divorce and sexual organs and things like that and so here i am kneeling next and- to this older man I, he is having me read this speech He doesn't know that my family is falling apart, but it's a speech that's speaking very directly to my personal pain. And I'm talking about like, you know, women in the secular world have been trash cans. How many of you would like to see divorce in your family, you know, and your sexual organ is a trash can, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, we close and he asks me to pray. And I started sobbing in my prayer Mm -hmm. and I was just like crying, going, heavenly father, please protect my brothers and sisters. I didn't know if I was praying for like the BCs on tour or my family at home that's stuck in this horrible environment. But when I closed the prayer, he looks at me and he goes, you cried for your brothers and sisters. And I was just like, you fucking asshole. (laughs) Like it was just such a gross moment. He and and this guy, so you were like 15 at the time. Mm -hmm. You're saying, yeah, Yeah. just for context, this guy was probably, I don't know, like 50, 40, 40, mid 40s, early 50s, something Mm -hmm. like that. Maybe a little, I don't know. Like, yeah, he was was a lot older, like at Uh least 30 years older than you. Yeah, he was old enough to be my father. Yeah. Um, And then he hands me $3 bills. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he goes, go get me a paper. So like, you've had this little girl <laughs> crying next to you. And then he's like, okay, go get me a paper. And so oh I, I, I've never been in Chicago before. And I'm sent out into this neighborhood to look for a paper. There's no stores anywhere. And so I'm like, all right, well, I guess I have to find like a vending box. And I yeah. wandered for like half an hour looking for a vending box kind of on the verge of tears anyway, just because of this whole situation that I've gotten out of the awkwardness of having this, this prayer meeting or whatever. And then I find the vending box and it only takes coins for 35 (laughs) cents. And I just lost it. And so this woman is like coming out of her house nearby. And I go up to her. I'm like, ma'am, can I please have change for a dollar? (laughs) And she just looks at me and she like hands me two quarters. And I'm like, no, I only need 35 cents. And she's just like, honey, go get your paper. (laughs) 
but like, you know, didn't ask me, are you okay or anything? <laughs> and so I show back up with the paper and doesn't even look at me. He just like grabs it, doesn't say thank you and just starts reading. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do next. And eventually I stood there for so long that I just ran back up to my room and started crying again. Two hours later, a couple of first generation come in and find me and, you know, are asking me what's wrong. And I won't tell them exactly what's happening, but I'm like, you know, my family is splitting up. My parents are separating. And I figured that that was enough for them. And so they're like, oh, maybe we should send her back to the tour group. Like not asking me, Mm. what do you need? Are you okay? They are talking about me like I'm not even there. Yeah. And then one of them goes, well, come upstairs to the office and help me with the press releases. There's no use wallowing. And so she puts me to work for the rest of the day until they're ready to take me back to the tour group. And comes in at the end of the day. And he just kind of looks me up and down and is like, well, I guess you weren't the one for the mission after all. You know, which is basically being like, well, you failed. You're a failure. Uh, man, fuck um, that guy so hard. God <laughs> damn. And uh, then, yeah, Jesus. Yeah. And so, and interestingly, um, I arrived back at the tour. And then one of the tour leaders asked me to give the opening speech at the first rally in hmm. Chicago. Um, and so obviously nobody had communicated like this girl is emotionally fragile, right? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, it sounds like, and, it sounds like they were oblivious to it yeah, like, or, or like, yeah. like you, like you, you would, you would allude to it or tell them it and they just, it just didn't register. It just went in one ear and out the other. It, 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 right. Cause that, that, that has no place in the structure of the, right. of the organization. Right. They, they just, they're blind to it basically. And I think that, you know, in like, let's say a public school situation, and I certainly don't want to paint this with, you know, too much of a rosy hue, but like, if a, if a kid comes to a teacher crying, like my parents are separating, that's probably a big deal. Like that teacher is probably like, we should have, you know, the school counselor talk to you, you need psychological support. That is a huge trauma. Uh, And so, you know, I wasn't even telling them like, here's the full scope of my trauma. I was just like, here's the tip of the iceberg. And there was no acknowledgement of it. Um, And so I said yes to this leader that I would do this speech because I figured like I'd already failed. I, I was looking for ways to get back into God's good graces. Right. Mm. And to be a good BC because nobody was going to want me in the blessing. Yeah. If anybody knew about this. Um, and, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, that's just, that's just going back. It's like, it's like if anyone knew about mm-hmm. the possibility that you had been sexually abused as a kid, mm-hmm. then they would not want to marry you correct within yeah. the, i just want to i just want to point that out yeah, let's that's underscore what, that's that. what that's that that's 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 the other thing beyond you like going to hell uh right for something that you had nothing to do with um also you can't marry anyone within the within the organization either which is the whole like the whole thing is built around that as a, a core right. part of it basically um and and you know i wasn't even like thinking like oh i'm not going to be able to marry anybody or anything like that i just knew like i was going to be this untouchable <clears throat> yeah. and my mother had told me not to tell anybody you know this is mm. the family secret now um and so oh, i was just looking for ways to kind of like fix myself Uh, So I agreed to do this speech and I was given half an hour from the time I was asked until the rally to like write a speech Mm. on the spot, uh, which wasn't a huge problem because again, it was like taken directly out of the clue curriculum. Yeah, you can, you can just kind of mix and match. Yeah, exactly. Again, Mad Libs. Yeah. Um, But what ended up happening is that 
people looked at me a certain way. They thought I was like super hardcore because mm. I'd given this first speech. They thought I was like really gung ho about abstinence and everything like that. But that night I wrote in my diary that I felt like a fraud. You know, I wrote something along the lines of like, you know, I'm not the girl that believes in abstinence to the core of my heart, mm. but I'm up there giving these speeches and I'm putting on this face of being happy because nobody would want to see who I really am. I don't even like who I am. Mm. So there's like this self-hatred that was yeah. perpetuated in the church when you weren't happy. Um, and my group leader, uh, he honed in on the fact that I was a little bit disconnected. And so another cultural thing for people that are not familiar with the church is that if you're introverted, if you're not like fully participating mm. um, in whatever's going on, you are considered to be like isolating yourself and creating a foundation for Satan. And so yeah. he could see that I was sort of emotionally disconnected. And so he started bullying me into trying to be more participatory. And I think he also said like, you know, what you think you're just better than everybody else. Cause you gave the first speech, like you're being very arrogant, you know, mm -hmm. and arrogance was one of those things that we had to like emotionally beat out of people yeah. as well. You couldn't yeah. be arrogant about your talents or anything like that. No, you no, no, humble yeah. about them. Yeah. So he would like force me to do things like karaoke in front of the bus. He wanted me to like do this speech contest in like the middle of this campground and stuff. And we had a lot of like headbutting. Um, and to me, it kept being this, like, I needed to submit to him. He was my central figure. Yeah. Um, and so I did not have a good time on that tour. And if we go to, we, we ended up going to UTS right before this tour split off. So it was two weeks and, in the United States and then two weeks in Europe. And, okay. uh, and at, so can you explain what UTS is? UTS is Unification Theological Seminary. And it's this former Christian Brothers Monastery that the church bought in Barrytown, New York in 1974. I believe the Steely Dan song Barrytown is about the Moonies at UTS. Oh, really? Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. yeah. You can see by what they carry that they come from Barrytown because they all had like these clipboards and stuff. Um, oh, interesting. But all anyway, right. yeah, it's it's an interesting song to listen to okay. in that context. Okay. So it's this like 250 acre uh, estate that was, um, it was originally, I think like a Livingston estate. There's a beautiful historic mansion there, but yeah. across the street from the mansion is this big brick building that was the monastery that is now the seminary. Yeah. Um, it was used as an education center, mostly in the seventies and has sort of been on the decline ever since then. Yeah. But it was also used as these training workshops. Like people mm. were sent there for re-education for like these 120 day workshops. Like if you were Whoa. considered to be out of line back in the seventies and eighties, you'd be sent to Barrytown for re-education. So it had wow. this sort of like academic front, but there was also sort of a more sinister side, but mm. we were staying there. Have you been there? Have you been to the dorms? I've been there. I've been there multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Do I don't you know remember? if I've been to the dorms, Okay, but I, I have been there. Yeah. Multiple times. Yeah. So I just, I want to like, <laughs> I just want to paint this picture of, of the dormitories. It was a bunch of metal bunk beds in a giant room that looked like it might've once been a basketball court, but I don't know what it okay. was, but you know, just imagine <laughs> yeah. like old wooden floor and things like that. I think I've been there. Yeah. Metal bunk beds in a row and then like rows and rows and rows of them. And the things that separated each cubicle was sheets. 
Okay. So you'd have like, if imagine if you were staying there for a long period of time, you would have yeah. a roommate with your bunk beds in this giant room. And the only thing that was separating you from your neighbors were sheets. Yeah. And like, if you were on the top bunk, you'd just see. You, did, the you didn't have seat. any privacy. You'd no privacy whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. So one of the tour leaders finds me in the dorm and she goes, Jenny, you need to call your parents. First time I'm ever ever offered a phone call ever yeah um she's like we need to know what airport you're going to be flying back into from europe and so i was like oh shit this is where grandma and grandpa's phone number is going to come in handy wow so i called my grandfather and i go grandpa do you know where my family is Mm. and he's like well they're still at home so apparently the past two weeks, my sister had basically been like taking care of my brothers and defending my mom against mm. my dad because yeah. he had become even more violent after the, ac- uh, the accusations while I'd been gone. So I call my mom and I said, you know, the tour leader needs to know where I'm flying home to. And she goes, okay, well, I've gotten a job as the dorm mother at New Eden Academy in Bridgeport. And your father is going to be in DC doing who knows what, but we're going to just be saying that, you know, our missions are what have separated the families, Uh, which was very common. You know, it, it wasn't uncommon again for families to be separated and those nuclear bonds to be Mm. broken. So a father might have a mission in another country and a mother might have a mission somewhere else. Yeah. So it it happened all the time. Yeah. So it wouldn't have raised any eyebrows at that point. Um, And I remember being in the dining hall after that kind of digesting this news that like, okay, my new home is going to be a boarding school. I'm going to be enrolled in this, this, this second generation boarding school. And I tell one of my friends and she had, she, she was a student there and she goes, oh my God, your mom is going to commit suicide. And I was like, what? what? And she goes, no, dorm parents always go crazy there. <laughs> so oh this God. is like painting the picture for me that this is not going to be like this idyllic heaven. Yeah. Um, and so in Europe, you know, I'm starting to feel more anxiety, having more panic attacks about like this unknown that's on the horizon Mm. to the point where I was having such trouble breathing. I was like hyperventilating towards the end of the tour. And we were back at Lancaster gate in London before I, Oh, so you've been there. I I used to live there. Yeah. Oh, really? Uh, It's one of the few properties that I remember not being completely decrepit. Like most of the church properties are not well-maintained. Yeah. It's uh, it's, it's not, it's not horrible. It's mm-hmm. in a great location. It's not horrible. Um, right. Yeah. I think I, I, I yeah, I, I lived, I lived there for a long time, actually. Interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah. So they brought me to the basement of Lancaster gate. Okay. Which I lived which, in the basement. Did you really, was it's it one, moldy when you lived in there? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Okay. It was, I lived in one of the basement flats. So it was like kind of semi, semi underground. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When I was there, uh, so this is like complete medical neglect. The kids having like these panic attacks, hyperventilating, they yeah. decided to separate me from the tour because I was being negative and they didn't want me to make anybody else yeah. negative. Okay. Instead of being like, do you need medical attention? So they bring me to the basement, which is basically like where they're storing all of the luggage. And there's two other girls yeah. sitting amongst the luggage in what I remember as being this very moldy smelling kind of situation. Okay. okay. Again, breathing problems. Let's go put her in the moldy basement. Mm, Great idea. Um, Awesome idea. And so the two other girls kind of acknowledge me and are like, you know, what are you in for? 
and I tell them I'm having these breathing problems, I never identified them as panic attacks when I was growing up Mm. because I was never treated for them. So nobody ever said, this is what's happening to your body. I just thought I was having trouble breathing and I knew that it was associated with stress. Um, So this other girl tells me that she's, she's basically suffering from migraines. um, But her, her team captain had told her she was being negative and the Hmm. other girl was covered in pussy bandages. And I was like, what the hell is happening? Yeah. And so she ends up telling us that, um, she had objected to the church leaders calling PLA a non-sectarian group because there were indeed uh, other kids in the tour who were not Unification Church members, yeah. but they were being forced to read Divine Principle, do Hunda K, etc. And so she said that she was not going to participate in those activities until these other kids were given a chance because yeah. otherwise we were liars. Yeah. So what they started sure. doing is separating her from the group, not letting her sleep, not letting her shower. She was basically like followed around by wow. older sisters who were her handlers all the time. Wow. She was not allowed to see a doctor. She basically had like a sepsis infection from this treatment. She was not allowed to call home. And I found out years later that she was 48 hours away from dying. Like she got home, her parents took her to a doctor and her doctor told her if she had not been treated, she would have been dead in two days. That's how bad her medical situation was. And that was being inflicted on her as punishment. Yeah. And so I'm having this conversation with these girls and we admit to each other, like we, none of us believe in true parents. And one of the girls is like, dude, I thought you were so hardcore. Like you were up there giving the speech. How do you not believe in true parents? And I was like, that's the girl that I have to be to survive, you yeah. know? And I'm looking, especially at this other girl. And I'm realizing like, if I don't keep up, I will fucking die. They will leave me to die here. And so instead of it being this moment of breaking away, it was a moment of me doubling down. Like I have to be a better BC because I'm broken, right? Mm -hmm. According to what my mom has told me. And if I can't keep up, I will literally be left behind to die. And so that's the, the mental place that I, um, I go to NEA with and for anybody that's not familiar with New Eden, New Eden was advertised as this like beautiful haven for blessed children where they'd get this world-class education. You have, to listen, to Donna's, you have uh, to listen to Donna's episode. Uh, yeah. I showed up the year after Donna. This was the uh, last okay. year that, that uh, New Eden was a boarding school. By then, it was basically the place that people sent their problem children. If they couldn't control them, they okay. sent them to New Eden. Yeah. And so it was this place of total misfits. And they hated me for the most part because not only was I like super withdrawn, which was a problem in the church. Yeah. I loved tool, which was a problem in the church. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also trying to be a good blessed child. So I would try to be like the first person to show up for morning service and stuff. Yeah. So of course they hated that. And my mom was on staff. So anytime somebody got oh, caught doing something. That's hard. Like yes. being in a boarding school with your parents on staff in any right. circumstance, but yeah. especially. 
So I got blamed a lot when people got caught for what was going on. Even if I was the last person to know about it, they thought that I was ratting them out to my mother. Oh, yeah. And so I was bullied pretty hardcore that whole year. Um, And I also started, I told that cute boy from PLA two years earlier, he was the one person that I told about what was happening in my family. Okay. And so we had developed this very strong emotional relationship. And when I admitted to him what happened, he said, that happened to me too. It wasn't my dad, but it happened to me too. Okay. And unfortunately, I think that there are a number of stories of kids who were sexually abused in the church. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 I mean, I also have to point out every, the the whole fucking premise of the church is sexual abuse in its own own right. And like everything we've talked about, like, yes, this is, this is sexual abuse, this environment. I totally agree. Um, purity culture in and of itself does manifest as sexual trauma. Uh, therapists uh, are finding that. Um, so yeah. anybody who's interested, you should read the book Pure. It is mostly a sociological look at the white female evangelical experience in purity culture, but I think it does shine an incredible light mm. on a lot of it. Huge trigger warnings, though, obviously, like Mm. I had to put the book down multiple times because I was in a a heightened state from it. Um, But anyway, so uh, the there were a number of rumors about me at New Eden, too. I talked to a boy once and then the (laughs) next day I was bullied for rumors that supposedly I was going out with him and uh, the headmistress. So. Like this, it all blew up uh, two, two days before my 16th birthday. The girls gathered in the lounge in a circle and screamed at me for hours, telling me how much they hated me, threatening me physically, things like that. Not all of them, but en- enough of them, a majority okay. of them. Um, and those that did try to defend me were then threatened. Um, and this is my- crazy, man. I, every person I talk to has these horror stories of, of these environments like whether yeah. it's NEA or whatever other place it doesn't it yeah. doesn't matter like they NEA is one of many but just these places I mean, where there's just like horrible neglect and kids mm-hmm. are just horrible to each other because the because the adults are nowhere they're just well the adults are nowhere, nowhere but the yeah. the adults also don't allow any boundaries either yeah. like we weren't allowed to lock our doors and the dorm mom so my mother was the dorm mom for the, the boys but the dorm mom for the girls would unlock our doors while we were sleeping like wake us up things like that mm-hmm. uh, we would get yelled at for locking our doors it was just like one more manifestation of you have no privacy yeah we have entree into everything yeah which i think would make anybody crazy our our curfew was nine o'clock at night you know so imagine a bunch of teenagers stuck in a dorm nine o'clock at night nothing to do what do you do other than lose your shit yeah you know and you're being monitored in unhealthy ways but there's not healthy supervision in other ways so um yeah there was there was some shit that happened so anyway these girls ganged up on me and then two days later it was my 16th birthday and they made me a cake and everybody's making nice like oh let's sing her happy birthday and the headmistress comes into the lounge where we're having cake and she sits down and you know just like in donna's story she was a peripheral figure we never really saw her so Mm. she shows up and we're all like what she sits down, she takes some cake, and she starts telling us about her three-day ceremony. <laughs> now, now I know you've talked about the three-day ceremony before, but just imagine uh, somebody... Oh, like, hey, I'm just for people... 
I'm cringing so hard right now. Yeah. So let's wanna, talk like, about what the picture. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. You tell me, pretend, pretend so, I haven't said anything. Right. The three day ceremony is a change of blood lineage ritual, but it is a sexual ritual that all first generation have to go through uh, when they start family, which means when they consummate the marriage, it is, it has its basis in ritual sex in the unification church, um, allegedly, mm. in a ritual called pigurun in Korean, which I know I'm pronouncing incorrectly, but that is basically womb cleansing, where supposedly Moon would have ritual sex with the women to cleanse their wombs and graft them onto the Messiah's lineage. So this, the three-day ceremony is supposedly uh, a remnant of that. It's and like the, a kind of like a home version of, of, it's of the, yes, of it's the it's like, the portable home version. Yeah. So you have um, you have an altar with true parents' picture on it, and then two cushions for them to attend spiritually, so they can be part of the act. Okay. The man and the woman have to disrobe, cleanse themselves, and cleanse their their sexual organs with their holy handkerchiefs. And then the first night, the woman is on top representing the mother who is giving birth to adam the second Whoa, night, okay yes. i knew she was on this top. is in a handbook this is I in a fucking why. handbook i haven't read that book i, <laughs> okay. I knew she was on top but i didn't know why so wait her on top is like giving birth to holy shit. yes the second, night, okay. the second night the second night um she is i guess she's eve or something and then the third night the man is on top he is the restored adam subjugating eve right Okay. Um, and then at the end, the they wipe their handkerchiefs again and they store them in Ziploc baggies. And these are holy relics. So supposedly, mm -hmm. all of our parents have holy relics somewhere. Yeah, I never found them. Thank I know. I, I know someone who's found their parents' oh. jizz handkerchiefs. <laughs> um, I know. I know. I know of at least one person who yeah. has just found them, just like in a filing cabinet or something. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. So like, yeah, in, speaking in, of horror. Yeah, in principle, you yeah, like you're if if you're a first generation member and you've done this, you're meant to like keep that forever. Like put it yes. in a ziploc bag yeah. and keep it forever because it's like okay. represents the moment when you like your blood lineage changed changed mm. over. So it's like my parents probably have it somewhere. I haven't seen it, thankfully. Yeah. But, like, yeah, and and honestly, like in the in the number of times that my family has moved over the years, and the number of times I've helped pack, <laughs> I'm so grateful I've never found those. Um, but in that moment, I was like, "Why is she telling us this? Like, and why is she telling yeah. me this on my birthday?" Because second generation don't have to do the three day ceremony. Yeah. I never really thought about it. I thought it was like this weird thing, yeah. in the shadowy past of the church. Yeah. And so I realized, like, holy shit, she's questioning my purity. Like she's oh, telling me okay. about this in the context of like, you have to keep the matching and blessing in mind at all times. Right. Like, she's, she's heard the rumor because I yeah. talked to this boy the other day, but now yeah. suddenly they think we're dating. And so I realized I was being like, I was being put under surveillance mm. for the rest of the year. Yeah. Now that year moon also decided he was no longer going to match the second generation anymore. Yeah. And so this opened up a huge theological issue for me because I was like, nobody's going to want me anyway. But if it's not the Messiah doing the matching that I don't even think that I believe in anyway, nobody's definitely going to want me. Mm. And I think my parents are batshit crazy. I don't want them matching me to begin with. Yeah. And so I decided um, that 
I needed to be, I needed to find a way to be matched to this guy that I had shared my history with that I had mm. a crush on, which was not allowed. You are not yeah. supposed to yeah, do Yeah, you're that. not meant to have any input into it. Right. People did. Let's yeah. be clear. People yeah, absolutely name-dropped. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And their parents had these convenient spiritual dreams. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I spent a lot of time trying to, like, circuitously name-drop and be like, hey, mom, you know, <laughs> we should get to know this family. They've gone through similar struggles. We can, like, support each other. Um but I, I very strictly maintained that we were only friends, this guy and I, mm-hmm. he came to visit New Eden one time and my mom caught us holding hands and she flipped her shit at him. Mm-hmm. Like she screamed at him so much that he ran from the dorm. Um, he was supposed to go take a ferry home that night, but we had missed the last ferry back. So he's driven from, from the dorm in fear because my mom is just like this raging harpy at him. And the whole staff had to form a search party to find him. Whoa. And they ended up finding him sleeping in the back of a U-Haul van that had like the back open. So he was like huddled in these moving blankets and was going to camp out overnight because Jesus my mom Christ. had made him feel so unsafe. Yeah. That that was preferable to staying in the dorm. He got marched back to the dorm and was like kept under surveillance on the fourth floor. Um, And my mom was like, you're going to make me lose my job because of your fallen behavior. Oh man, that's fucked up. That didn't happen. But at the end of that year, uh, they let me graduate even though I had, I was a junior and I hadn't completed all my credits. They're like, well, you only have some Spanish credits left. So you're going to go on religious youth service, which is another uh, front group front of group. the unification church. You're going to go to Central America and do a month long service project down there. And that'll count as your Spanish credits. Um, but we'll let you graduate. Um, because I, unlike <laughs> Donna's experience, I did get to take college classes at the University of Bridgeport. So I was okay. basically going to school from morning until night because I was like, I have to get out of school. I'm not going to survive another year. Like yeah. my, my whole history is so messed up academically. Um, at the end of the year, after graduation, the church basically decided to close New Eden. It was it was completely wow, so it's only, it's only there for a couple of years. I think that was the third or fourth year. Yeah. Um, I think it just had such a bad reputation at that point. Yeah. They closed New Eden. They rebranded it as uh, Bridgeport International Academy and made it a day oh. school. So my mom okay. no longer had a job and we oh, no longer okay. had a home. So we spent oh, the next shit. six months homeless. Fucking and hell. The first two weeks, we house sat for my mother's spiritual daughter while she visited um, family in Guatemala. The next month, my mom got a job cooking for Camp Sunrise, so for the summer workshops. Uh, But I got us kicked out because this guy that I had a crush on came to visit and uh, he came for a blessing workshop. I wasn't allowed to attend because I didn't have the money for the fee. And they had me working for our room and board. I, just, uh, I love in the that. Office. I love how they make you pay. Are yeah. you kidding me? They make you pay after after everything you've just explained. Like your whole your family working their whole fucking lives for this for this goddamn mm-hmm. organization. Yeah. And they have the fucking gall to say, "Oh, you gotta pay, you gotta pay to go to this to go to this workshop to for you to get married to the people that we decide you can get married right, to." Right. What fucking assholes. I mean, and that's saying nothing of the blessing fee either. Yeah. But in in that particular situation, my mom, I don't believe that she was paid to be the camp cook. 
I think that room and board were basically her fee. And when we arrived, they were like, oh, you're Jen, you're going to work in the, the office too for your room and board. I was not paid. Well, and I was underage again, mm. you know, so all the legalities of that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's against the law. I'm pretty I, sure. I, I think I think that I think, yeah, like child labor is like not really a thing that's yeah, yeah. to do, right? So uh, at this point, the RYS project is already going on during that summer. I don't have the money to go. So I've missed the Spanish credit. I'm at Camp Sunrise and this guy comes to a blessing workshop and we make a pact that we are finally going to straight up outright ask our parents to match us. Mm. Like we're done hiding. We want to be up yeah. front with them. We, yeah. you know, we want to respect them. Yeah. And we had very good reasons for it too. Yeah. So I actually sat my mother down and I was like, look, here's a situation. Mm. Nobody's going to want me because of what happened. Cause my yeah. mother wouldn't let us talk about it directly. We had to use euphemisms. Okay. Um, and so I was like, I want you to consider this guy and me to be matched. And I said, you know, he's going to ask his father. So, you know, you guys need to think about it. Uh, and his father said we had to wait three years, which was kind of devastating. But Whoa. also gave my mom. Yeah, I know. I know. Wow. Three years. Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but it gave my mom the wiggle room to be like, we'll see. Um, but we got caught kissing goodbye. It was the uh -oh. first time uh -oh. we ever kissed. Oh, no. Uh, Tragic. Yeah. And, and so we got kicked out. My family got kicked out of Camp Sunrise when we were homeless. And so we spent the next several months, again, living in like the most rundown motels that you can think of, oh. living off of my grandfather's credit card until it again got maxed out. And uh, my grandfather basically called my mom and gave her this ultimatum, like, look, you either need to come back to Arizona, like I will buy you a house but you, you need to leave this environment behind. Yeah. This is obviously toxic. Yeah. Um, I don't know exactly what the caveats were, but it was enough for my mother to, I guess, get in touch with my dad's boss. So at this point, my dad is working for one of the moon children. Um, they, he was the moon child was running this consultancy to, uh, to help basically rich kids get into college. Um, and so I, I just want to point out the like, uh, why does that not surprise me why? I, I want to point out too that um a lot of I think all of the the moon children went to Ivy League schools but the yeah. blessed children were told that we should go to Bridgeport because yeah uh, the Unification Church had like a had invested a lot of money in Bridgeport and had like a 60% control of the board at that point mm. um, so there's a lot of articles at the time of like the Moonies taking over Bridgeport was I don't know if it still is but was considered like one of the worst schools in America at mm. the time mm. so the irony of these the, the true children, as we call them, going to Ivy League schools, setting up this expensive consultancy for rich children to get help to get into these Ivy League schools yeah. where, you know, BCs are being told to go to this shit school. In a, Bridgeport was one of the most violent cities in, you know, it had an incredibly high crime rate. Mm. Um, people, students were given personal alarms while oh. they were on campus because it was such a violent surrounding area. Whoa. New Eden students were not, but UB students were. Okay. Um, so anyway, I guess my mom got in touch with my dad's boss who was right under the true child. And my dad's boss is like, how would it look for one of the true children's employees to have his wife and children homeless? 
So he gives my dad this ultimatum of you have to find your family a place to live. Otherwise you're going to lose your job. And so my parents have a series of meetings and then my mom sits us kids down and says, I've decided to get back with your father, which means that we're going to have to put all of this past behind us. And you have to understand that I believe that, you know, heavenly spirit world couldn't help us because I disunited with your father. And so basically it's like this whole past year and a half of emotional torment we have to not talk about anymore. And so my family reunited. Um, but at that point, I was still very emotionally tied to this other BC. Mm. And, uh, and as I tried to continue to facilitate conversations and get my mother to agree to this matching, she became more emotionally abusive around it. And she okay. would tell me things like, you know, you're just a fallen Eve. You're this temptress. You're a whore. Uh, you're a slut. Got her snipe. You heard that of- from your mother. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That was totally common language for her. Even as young as when I was like 12 and 14, you know, when, when she knew I had crushes and stuff. So this was straight up emotional abuse. And she was very abusive of this young man too, to the point where I can't necessarily a hundred percent pin it on her, but he left the church. He, I think he was just like, fuck this. Like Mm -hmm. I loved this girl and they wouldn't let me be with her. He got an outside girlfriend. He got her pregnant. He had to take her to get an abortion. And he went through the whole shunning process of the church after that. I can imagine. Yeah. But when I found that out, I thought we were still together. So I was completely devastated. Yeah. Oh Um, man. And so it was, it was like just completely emotional annihilation to the point where I was so broken that when my parents were like trying to extract a uh, promise to let me, let them find someone to match me to, I was like, yeah, "Yeah, whatever. Like, I just, I don't care at this point. So they tried to find me somebody and uh, it was very difficult um, because by that point, I think a lot of people kind of knew what had happened with my family. Yeah, I, the thing is, like, I remember like word word travels in the, yeah. all, all along the grapevine, like, oh, this family's having this these X problems, or right, you know, right. like it would. I I didn't necessarily know anything about you or your family, you know, but I I remember hearing that about families. Well, uh, and to community. to kind of underscore that during the point that my family was my my mother and my siblings and I were homeless again this was like six months we went to UTS and we asked the president for a place to stay we're like can we stay in the dorms my mom Mm. most likely said you know I can help cook or I can do whatever I'll pimp out my daughter in your office you know whatever you need Mm. Uh, they wouldn't let us stay um because my because of the fact that my mother was not with my father and at that point they knew they weren't separated because of a mission i think they knew the whole situation they wouldn't let us stay which is why we ended up what's that i was just gonna say that right there that without i remember that specifically happening a lot like yeah any families that that weren't that didn't fit the mold of like Mm -hmm. you know two parents living together with their kids uh were shunned effectively yeah. they were yeah. like they, they lost their status they were shunned they were considered complete failures by the right. uh, by the organization right and so i i kind of need to rewind a little bit to to underscore that point after being homeless for this time and having had the church um really shun us um i was angry 
but this was pre losing this guy. Right. Mm. And so in my mind, again, I'm thinking I need to do better. I need to be better in order to be accepted by this community. Right. I have to prove myself. And so, um, the next summer I did go to Central America with RYS, which was like mostly me doing construction work in Guatemala and Honduras mm-hmm. and El Salvador. I, w- I went on some of those things where they, you go and they're like, yeah, just go build something. Like, Right. Okay. Uh, so were you in El Salvador where you had to be protected by soldiers with machine guns? No, but I was in Haiti. Okay. Uh, I, I, so, don't, I don't know if Haiti was any better or worse, but yeah. it fucked up. So again, you know, bringing kids yeah. into incredibly unsafe environments is, is yeah. the reason that I bring it up. I contracted amoebic dysentery while I was down there oh. uh, in the first week. So okay. I, I spent some really wow. rough evenings, uh, basically with like just draped over the toilet. Yeah. Um, but nobody took me to get any kind of medical attention. By the oh. time, basically once I could keep jello and water down, I was sent back out to do construction work. Oh. And so three weeks later, I arrived home. And by that point, I had also promised my parents that I would do STF. So that's Special Task Force, uh, which was named after the military unit, just in case any listeners. Oh, I didn't know that. Wait, what what military unit? The Special Task Force. Like that refers. What, that's a U.S. military? Mm -hmm. I'm going to look this up really quickly. Special Task Force. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's an elite paramilitary force. Uh, this is referring to the <laughs> Sri Lankan police, but I'm sure that there's also okay. South African police. I think it's just so it's like, kind of a mili- military. It's a military like... term, right? Okay, interesting. Um, I didn't know that. And so, special task force falls under something called the seven year course. And so, the seven year course was something that when Moon's son um, Hyunjin, I believe, is the third son when he came to power running carp carp is the college wing of the unification church it stands yeah. for the college association of research of principles yeah what a horrible um, name. yeah so when he came to head of carp i think there was this realization among the leaders that the second generation had never had that conversion experience mm. um, and you talk about this in some of your earlier episodes yeah. we didn't have the conversion experience yeah. and therefore our faith was probably weaker yeah. so they needed to create a program that would in a sense facilitate that break if yeah. you will and yeah. that conversion experience so it was something that the seven-year course consisted of a year of fundraising on stf a year of mission work um then you were supposed to call, go to college at uh university of bridgeport and then you were supposed to do like missionary work to complete the seven years whoa okay i had never mm-hmm. even heard that I, I i all i knew was like stf was this thing but i didn't know there was no, like, it, was, uh, it uh, rolled uh, up to the seven-year course which was of- which was part of what was called the formula course. And so if you wanted to be considered for leadership, if you wanted to be considered a good BC, you did the formula course. So I was 16 when I graduated um, and my parents really wanted me to go to STF. And I was like, I feel like I'm a little too young. The Mm. reason that I said that is because I saw my friends coming back from STF and I was like, these people are completely changed. Like yeah. they seemed like zombies. I could that not. Program, that program hollows people out. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's really sad to see people go and come back and you're like, whoa, right. you're, you're like, you, you've lost like. Yourself. There, there's, there's a bit of you that has changed. 
Right. Exactly. And some people get it back, but some people don't. Right. And so I really pushed back hard when I was 16 to not go to STF because I was so scared. But by the time I was 17, um, my mother had been so insistent about not approving this match with this guy that mm. I decided to say, I will go on STF as a condition to let heavenly spur world, you know, facilitate this match. It sounds crazy now, but that's sort of the level of thinking that I mean, we had in the church. Yeah. We, it's, it, yes, it sounds crazy now, but as someone who lived in that environment right. as well, it doesn't sound crazy exactly for, from that perspective. So I was sent on religious youth service to finish my Spanish credit, got amoebic dysentery, came home and two days later was sent out on STF. Wow. Okay. Um, and again, I'm 17, so I'm underage, and I was living in a van, fundraising 10, 16 hours a day, seven days a week, being brought across state lines. So that is yeah. the definition of labor trafficking. Mm. Um, yeah, sounds like it. Folks, there you have it. It's the end of part two with Jen Kiaba. I recorded the interview in January and I'm recording this outro on the 13th of April. And I had actually forgotten how intense all of these experiences were and how crazy everything was. Um, and just looking looking at some of the, the threads that are present throughout this one of the things that i that, that i keep noticing in this as well as other ones are like you know if people are suffering from you know medical issues or you know personal issues family issues you're they're shamed into silence or they're abused or they're made to feel that those are their fault or the fault of their their ancestors and they're, they're not addressed at all and the failure to address them the complete negligence and and abject unwillingness to do anything about real issues has some pretty terrifying real world consequences this episode and others are full of near misses they almost killed the girl with the sepsis infection jen's line in this episode if i don't keep up i will fucking die they will leave me here to die these are the near misses. I've had many of these near misses in my own experience. In the next episode, we don't talk about a near miss. We talk about someone that actually died due to the negligence and the abusive nature of the Unification Church. That's why I think you should listen to it because it's not about the near misses. It's about the tragedy that really happened please stick around for part three of my interview with jen kiaba it's called her name was